Monday. Welcome to Cross Politic on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Pastor Toby, talk to us. I'm the water boy. Thank you for joining us after this Easter weekend. Can I just tell you it was fabulous? Easter weekend was fantastic. I, I just want to, just real quick, I just want to give a salute to my elders and to my deacons, in which some of them have to be happen to be here on the show with me. How thank you sur- guys. Surrounded. I'm thank you. I mean it from the bottom of my heart. I am so we, grateful for what you guys did yesterday. Pray. I mean, I'm almost moved to tears. We, it was beautiful. It was fun. It I was mean, beautiful. It was, it was great thank to you. be able to worship, celebrate Easter outside. We did. Yeah. A, we did a drive-in worship service. We had a FM radio trans. Transmitter. Shh, it don't, was, don't reveal all the secrets. It was hilarious. So email us if you want to figure yeah. out how to do this yourself. <laughs> we got like, the secrets. And, and Pastor Wilson gets up there and says, honk if you love Jesus. Well, probably the actually <laughs> best time to use that. It was hilarious. <laughs> hey, with us on the line right now, we're very grateful to have Dr. Ryan Cole. He's a pathology specialist down from Boise, Idaho. Hey, he's our own here. state. Yeah, finally. That. Idaho represent. He graduated with honors from Medical College of Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in 1997. He has uh, more than 23 years of diverse experience, especially in pathology. Uh, He is board certified, Mayo Clinic trained, anatonic clinical pathologist. He's seen over 350,000 patients. What? Wow. In lab or under microscope. I have never done anything 300,000 times except Uh, for maybe breathe. And you can uh, find (laughs) find out more uh, at ColeDiagnostics.com. Dr. Cole, thanks for joining us on Cross Politics. Yes, sir. Hey, thanks. A pleasure to be here, and I hope I can be useful and answer some questions for you and your audience. We appreciate it. So, first off, tell us, what is Crush the Curve? Well, Crush the Curve is a movement we have going on in Idaho right now. You know, we really want to get Idaho back to work, and just like we want to get a nation rolling again. The only way we do that with all these shutdowns and lockdowns is let's find out who's immune from this virus. So... You know, as as we look around the country, there's a challenge getting testing, but more importantly, it's what kind of testing should we be doing? What should we be looking at? And certain things we've been hearing from kind of the snail-moving large bureaucracies really really haven't been helpful. So the community's coming together with Mm. forward-thinking people, rapidly-thinking people, and uh, getting the appropriate testing in large quantity and getting a, a lot of people tested and prove immunity and get people back to work. So uh, what, can you talk to us about the different kinds of tests that are available out there, and what's the kind of testing that you think is most helpful for getting people back to work? Thank you. That's a very important question. So everybody's been clamoring for getting the swab stuck up their nose and the yeah. brain scraping. <laughs> and uh, let's, let's get this PCR test, PCR test. Well, what we're not being told about the PCR test, and this has been very frustrating as a scientific professional, that PCR test, it's important, and it can be very accurate when done done properly, one. And two, you have to have enough virus in that site to detect it. Well, studies out of Germany have shown after, after about a, say you're exposed on day zero, by about day 10, that virus is no longer in your nose. Huh. It moves down into the throat and down into the lungs. So say you've been sick a week. You know, your symptoms usually appear about day five or six after being exposed. Yeah. So go into your doctor a week later saying, Doc, I've been sick for a week, I had a fever, I had a cough, they stuck, stick the swab up your nose, but you're outside of that window of detectability, you may get a false negative on that PCR swab. Wow. Wow. So, so this is what you're not hearing nationally from a lot of pulpits in Washington, <laughs> and it's really frustrating. So what's very important is we can take the blood, uh, a sample of the blood, and we can look not for the virus particle, but for your body's reaction to the virus po- mm. particle. Those are your antibodies. 
your antibodies. Yeah. And your antibodies are basically your little soldiers that circulate around in your blood and grab onto the virus and help clear it out. And you have an early antibody called an IgM antibody, and you have a late antibody called an IgG antibody that appears several weeks after. Mm. So these immunoglobulins, these antibodies, are what glom onto the virus. So you have an acute phase and a memory phase, and you'll get some overlap between. So say that patient that went to the doctor, you know, a week out, got the swab, was told they're negative. If we test their blood, we can actually see the early antibody specific to a reaction to this virus and say, hey, 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 yes, you were sick. Yes, you were told that you were negative on your swab, but guess what? Your body's reacting to the virus. You actually have COVID-19. And so by catching those patients in that window, now we know, hey, we have a diagnosis for you. So there's an overlap, a useful period for PCR, but there's an overlap where the early antibodies become diagnostic as well. So if you get missed by PCR by either a bad swab or not enough virus there, or miss the window in which PCR is relevant, then antibodies become critical mm-hmm. for diagnosing the patient. And so we're doing both. You know, we're, we're ramping up the PCR here in Idaho. Um, it was really difficult to get because all the reagents went to the national laboratories. Well, now because of generous donors, we've been able to get some supply and whatnot, and we're ramping that up. In addition, here we've been testing the antibodies for three weeks now. So we have the one thing you don't hear on the news is how prevalent is this disease? How prevalent, you know, what's that denominator? Only the mm-hmm. sickest of people are the swab up the nose. Right. Well, what we're able to show so far in our, our large study of, you know, a few thousand patients so far in our valley, about 5% of people are infected. But most importantly, half of those don't have symptoms. Hmm. So we're, we're testing symptomatic and asymptomatic people, and we're finding, and this is consistent with world data and what came out of Korea, Half of people aren't showing symptoms throughout the course of this virus, and they become our silent carriers or spreaders of the virus. So, you know, we can track them to immunity as well, but potentially, you know, have them uh, stay at home and be safe for a while and not spread the virus, because this is a very contagious virus, as you've probably heard, and a lot of people can can get this uh, very easily. So, if it, how, uh, statistically, how contagious is it? So influenza, one-to-one, you know, one person gives it to one person. So, you know, moderately contagious. With this virus, originally we were finding it was about 1 to 2.6 to 3 people. So if I have it, I can give it to up to 3 people. Mm-hmm. Well, when, when we found out how aerosolized this virus is and hence the recommendation for masks, the latest studies kind of doing a retrospective out of Wuhan, China, showed it's actually about one person can transfer to about every 5.7 people which really explains why it's spreading faster, and that's why we probably have more prevalence of it quietly within our society, not knowing about it. And that's where the antibodies become important, because we can tell actually who's had it and or who has it. Yeah. So it seems like we looked at the data on our Sunday special, and it showed that uh, basically those over 60 years old, the death rate is uh, basically 3% and above, but those under 60 years and below, the death rate kind of gets you between that influenza and H1N1 death rate, about 0.01 to, you know, about 1.5%-ish. Um, and so right. it, it seems like the, the younger people are able to handle this. It, it, you know, it's more, it, don't want to conflate the issues too much here, but it, it, it does seem like it's more flu-like in terms of death rates to those who are under 60, and then the greater the increase after that. It, so really, I, I think we're, we flipped the, quarant- the quarantine upside down. We should, we should quarantine those who are at high risk, those who are older, 
and let the other kind of build up herd humidity, immunity through this whole process. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting idea. It's an unknown virus. You know, originally the data around the world, um, you know, was, was showing how deadly it was. But to your point, you know, this is where the problem of not having that denominator and not knowing how widespread it was right. really would have made that death rate look lower. And which I think we're going to see that death rate's going to continue to go down because we're going to find that this virus has been here longer than we've been told and is more prevalent than we think. So that death rate will go down. So in terms of quarantine, yeah, selective quarantining would have been wiser earlier instead of just a, a large lockdown. Now, we weren't able to do that because of the availability of testing. You can't fight a battle with, without a map. So by testing, we actually have the map. We can see where it is, how much is there, what populations is it affecting. Absolutely, it's you know very, very dangerous to the elderly. And I can talk to you know, talk to the reason why. And then you can also see, you know, autoimmune conditions. But I want to get to that point. You know, the good majority of America is immune suppressed right now. And for one very simple reason, it's the end of winter. And we don't have any vitamin D in our system because (laughs) the sunshine, it's, you know, it's interesting because, and I tell me if I'm going on a tangent here, but, you know, vitamin Vitamin D is critical to the balance of our immune system. Every cell in your body has a vitamin D receptor in the nucleus, and it manages or regulates hundreds of genes. Well, I could run outside naked for four months in the winter. I don't do it. Don't worry about that. (laughs) I could run outside for four months naked on all sunny days and synthesize zero vitamin D. And if you live anywhere in the world above the 37th parallel, you know, across the world, you can't synthesize adequate vitamin D in the winter. Well, vitamin D regulates, it's a pro-hormone, not just a vitamin. It, it regulates your other hormones, and it also balances your immune system. So if you're low on vitamin D, which I test in my laboratory all the time, I see patients who have rickets-level vitamin D, you know, the old bone diseases yeah. from 100 years ago. Yeah. So people are very low. Now, there, here's another another point, is the more pigmented your skin is, you know, the lower your vitamin D is, the further north you live. So as we look at these statistics about, you know, the at-risk populations and the underserved populations and why is it affecting African-Americans in Chicago and Detroit, New York at higher rates, well, pigmented skin is an adaptation as protection from the sunshine. And, you know, Mm. evolutionarily or biologically, those individuals came from equatorial areas. So the further north you live, the even harder it is to synthesize vitamin D. So Anyone who's low on vitamin D is immune suppressed. Anyone who's immune suppressed is prone to a, a more adverse, poor outcome from this virus. Huh. Dang it! So instead of <laughs> everybody, every made, everybody made a run to the grocery store for toilet paper, and they should have made a run to the grocery store for vitamin D three. Oh, as we did, because we because we knew that <laughs> sitting on the shelf right now. So so. So, uh, I guess that's the question right now. So, should a lot of African American friends and people who have pigment of the skin, uh, people of color, I guess is the word everybody's using, uh, should they be going against vitamin D three right now? Or what should we be doing to try and help build our immune systems if we are living up? I mean, it's not just up north; it's down south too. Yeah, it's down south too. I mean, and and again, it's still winter down south, so their D levels are still you know lower this time of year. Now that we're going to spring, everybody talks about, well, gosh, you know. 
you know, the heat will make the virus go away. I'm like, no, that's not it. The heat will get people out in the sunshine. People out in the sunshine are going to synthesize vitamin D in their skin, and they're going to have better immunity to fight off viruses. Mm. So, yeah, if if the further north you are, and if you're, you know, a person of color, absolutely. If you haven't been taking vitamin D3 in the winter, the, the studies show, you know, people are dying from acute respiratory distress syndrome, and studies show if your vitamin D levels are in the mid-normal range, you absolutely don't develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. Mm. And there's very good medical articles on that. So if, you know, all my brothers who have uh, slightly more pigmentation than this pasty white guy here, I would absolutely recommend that you take vitamin D. And I take, I mean, I live live north, you know, we're 40 parallel north. I take 10,000 units a day in the wintertime, and during the viral out, I'm taking 10,000 international units a day. Um, vitamin, you know, a lot of doctors get scared of it. Oh, the recommendations are this. Well, those recommendations were eons ago for preventing rickets, right. not for optimizing huh. health and your immune system. Huh. So, you know, if you're low and haven't taken it, I mean, you can take, I know I have physician colleague friends who will take 50,000 units a day for three days when they feel the cold coming on and then That's step back down to 5,000 units a day. That's right. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's very immune protective. And, you know, it helps balance. And what it does in the lungs, you know, these patients that are dying from what you've been hearing on the news, the cytokine storm, D acts as a break or a regulator that prevents that storm from happening. So vitamin D is critical, you know, vitamin C, zinc, um, you know, just we, ha- we don't have, I mean, obviously we have viral, viral pandemics, but the problem is we have a vitamin D deficiency pandemic. Oh, oh man. And, Interesting. Hey, so let's talk vaccine for a minute then. How realistic can we turn around a vaccine in the next, you know, uh, two weeks, month? Well, or, you know? or is it even vital, viable for us to wait for a vaccine? Right. Oh, wow. I don't, he's shaking his well, head. He's shaking his head. <laughs> shaking my head. So never, never in the history of humankind have we created a vaccine against any coronavirus that's been effective. So of all the viruses, you think of the original SARS back in Asia in 2002, 2003, that killed 10% of people. You think of the MERS virus, the Middle Eastern respiratory uh, syndrome that affected the Arabian Peninsula, no vaccine, that killed about 30% of people. So, you know, in research vaccine studies, here's what's interesting. In the studies, they, you know, target certain proteins to match what we want to create a vaccine against. In the study subjects, looked like it was going fine. You're, you know, producing antibodies to the protein. Looks like we're going to have immunity. The vaccine's going to work. Well, it did exactly what this acute respiratory distress syndrome is doing. All of a sudden, these patients' immune systems overreacted. Mm. And in animal models and the cat models, it was killing, killing, killing a highly unacceptable rate of subjects in the vaccine studies. And they went, whoa, halt. We can't. Then this was for the SARS virus, the, the original SARS-CoV-1, and this is SARS-CoV-2. So it's still a SARS virus. It's just coronavirus number two, SARS-Coronavirus-1. We now have SARS-Coronavirus-2 or COVID-19. Yep. So those, those original vaccine studies were an abject failure and incredibly dangerous. The earliest we could have a vaccine if they, you know, science has advanced in, in the last decade or so, and a lot of our DNA genetic techniques and CRISPR and other things, inserting sequences, you know, obviously we've advanced, but the earliest, you know, they say is 12 to 18 months. The last time we created a large vaccine for the world, it took five years to get that vaccine Ooh. to market. Wow. 
So, so you know, this optimism of 12 to 18 months, sure, but how safe is that going to be? Pharmaceutical companies don't make money on pharmaceuticals anymore. They've all, all gotten into the uh, vaccine business because, you know, they're indemnified. There's these large vaccine injury funds. And so you look at their large injury funds, and it's like, well, we can make money. We know we're going to get paid on a big vaccine, and we don't. We have no liability if something goes wrong. Wow, that's bad incentive. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, right. go ahead, Doc. So um, we've been talking a lot about like businesses using this as an opportunity to come up with a solution. People coming up with a solution. You know, local churches coming up with a solution, not the government. <laughs> You know, I'm sure you followed some of this, but like all the testing originally came out from the CDC and a lot of it had a high failure rate and it was problematic and all this stuff. What what are you proposing? What is crush the curve? What are you proposing in all this and working with businesses to come up with a solution to kind of get us all back to work and get us all confident? Yeah, why still protecting the, the weak among us with this? Yeah. Well, one thing we're trying to prove is this virus has been here longer than we think. So if we can prove you have that memory antibody, that IgG, um, you are presumed immune. Now, this this is a virus that we haven't seen before in humanity. So how long does your immunity last? You know, three, four mm-hmm. months, a year, 10 years? You know, think back, you know, you get a tetanus shot every 10 years because, it, you know, your immunity, you know, fades off. So, you know, you, you get re- re-stimulated on certain vaccines over time. So in terms of what we're trying to do right now, let's prove how many people have already been exposed, how many people have that memory antibody. Boom, get them back on the line. Let's see who's in mid-phase of the disease with, you know, the other two antibodies. Great. you got two weeks to go. Let's text, test you one more time. Boom, get back to work. Okay, you're, you're only IgM. Great. Let's isolate you for two weeks. But now we can track you through the process. Let's get you back to work. So we're trying to prove the prevalence of the disease, who's been exposed, who's acutely sick and may, may need some treatment, you know, if we need to, right. you know, give some treatments off, obviously let's protect those who are at risk and, and ill. And then, you know, in terms of, you know, getting out there and, and trying not to spread it, all of us are going to get this disease eventually. <laughs> we don't have immunity to it as, as a group. So to build right. that immunity, we all eventually have to get sick. So it's just a matter of, Who's going to be the one who gets the sickest and ends up, you know, potentially with a really bad outcome and or death and, oh, okay. and going, to see the, going to see the Lord sooner than they want to? So um, <laughs> you, know, you, you really, you know, the protective measures are, are not a bad idea. I think masking right now is an excellent idea. You know, it keeps the virus from spreading and it keeps you from catching it. And or it may help you just get a lower dose of the virus. You may brew it, not go through a bad course of disease and eventually develop immunity. The lower the viral load you get up front the the more of a chance that you're going to have very mild disease. This is why healthcare workers are at high risk because we're interfacing with patients over and over and over. By the end of the day, we have a huge viral load. And if you look at the poor doctors in Spain and Italy and France and nurses and other healthcare providers, so if we as a society end up getting it at a lower level, have milder symptoms, then maybe we get through this with very, very mild outcomes, immunity and then we're back and rolling again so you know you can't you can't uh you can't uh, you can't map what you can't see so you have to see it so we're trying to see it so we can map it and then and then say hey look you're good to go get back to work and if you're in this stage in between you know keep using the safety precautions wash your hands i hate the word social distance we're social creatures we need to physical 
distance for the interim, just physical distance. We're, you know, love your brother, love your friend. You know, we're social creatures. Uh, that What a stupid term the government came up with on that. <laughs> oh, uh, colddiagnostics.com for those of you who are on Facebook <laughs> looking for his website. There you can get it. Doug, you need to go on more tangents because every tangent you go on, I, all my questions are getting answered. So I appreciate your tangents. Go for them. The other thing I want to, want to talk to you about is hydroxychloroquine. I know. Did I say that right? <laughs> Yeah, hydroxychloroquine, sure. Okay, woo, surprise. Um, so I've heard a lot of people really push this and say it's a good thing. And there's a few dissenters who I trust that were right about not shutting down the government, which it sounds like if we're all going to get it anyway. We probably should have thought better about how to go about uh, doing some sort of quarantine. Like, like chicken pox parties <laughs> or something, well, you know? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, but at least done something a little different than what we did. But with hydroxychloroquine, they're concerned that the – was the psychedelic effects that it has on the brain, while it might help with COVID-19, it is going to leave some sort of damages possibly to some who, uh, who are susceptible to this, to this drug, to the brain that we, we don't foresee yet. Is that true? Uh, not in my medical opinion, no. Um, you know, we take billions of doses of this medication around the world every year, especially in malarial zones of the world, I've done work with Doctors Without Borders in Mexico and with endemic uh, malarial regions, dengue fever and whatnot. My wife's been to Africa, done volunteer work over there. She's taken it. You know, do you get some pretty wild dreams? Yeah. I mean, you don't even have to pay a ticket for a movie and popcorn. You get a good dream out of it. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a problem. But the other thing, too, is is if you consider it as, as a dose for treatment, you're only getting it for five days. And the, the doses are nothing compared to, you know, patients that take it for lupus or arthritis. So there are plenty of patients who take this at much higher doses than what we're talking about. And it's, it's been on the market for over 70 years. It's, you know, the FDA has one job, and that's to pro- uh, provide for safety of a medicine, not for efficacy. The FDA's only mandate is to prove a drug is safe. Well, this drug's been on the market for, you know, 70 years in different forms. Originally chloroquine, then the hydroxychloroquine is actually safer than chloroquine. And, and you know, again, off-patent, cheap, 10 cents a pill. Um, the entire nation of India mandated that their uh, health care providers and first responders take it as a preventative. <laughs> so in India, they're actually forward-thinking, just the opposite of our government clamping down and actually preventing the disease in our people. And, you know, it's I've taken it. Uh, I, I'm still functioning okay, I think, so yeah. far. And, uh, <laughs> so, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, are there some side effects? Yeah, uh, you know, some people get some wild dreams, admittedly. Adverse outcomes from taking it, one in 125,000 patients may have an adverse outcome. I'll take that risk any day over the number of people a virus could kill. Yeah. Mm. So, Dr. Cole, um, say uh, Governor Little calls you into his office later today. Because he's got a decision to make here on Wednesday. He's uh, going to let you take over his job. No, no, no. no. But, but no, he, so, so his, his isolation order expires at midnight on Wednesday, on April 15th. Yeah. And uh, so he says he's, he's mulling over what he's going to do next. Um, if, if you're called upon to give him advice and counsel, what would your counsel be? Uh, my counsel would be that everybody who's going to be out and about right now should be masked. I think that's reasonable. Um, Obviously, we keep the physical distance concept. Um, if you're in big settings, don't be in big social settings. I, I think I don't want someone getting it and going home and killing grandma and and or killing you know a family member with an immune condition. So 
if we want to get an economy rolling, let's test. You know, let's test, 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 test. Let's crush this curve. Let's see who has it. Let's see who's really safe to be out there. And, you know, if we're going to have a functioning society again, we don't need this distrust of who could be carrying it, who is going to kill grandma or that cancer patient on chemo or somebody else that is in that risk category, the diabetic, the hypertensive, et cetera. You know, let's find who's safe to be out there. Let's get us out there, you know, little by little. I mean, I'm watching my window. Everybody's out anyway. Right. So it's not like the clampdown or the shutdown is really happening, in my opinion. Um, but, I mean, I, I think it's prudent to mask right now. Um, I think it's prudent to be outside and getting sunshine for sure right now, because now we're in that time of year with synthesizing vitamin D. Um, if, if I had my druthers and I was, were king for a day, you know, I would do what India did and said, all right, you know, every citizen take a five days of hydroxychloroquine with zinc. I left that out. Zinc is critical to the function, the, the two-punch mechanism. I could go through the science of that if you wanted me to. You know, if, if we wanted to be the forward-thinking state in the nation, we could be this fantastic study of anyone who's eligible, you know, take five days of hydroxy and zinc. And uh, then once a week for five weeks, and we'd be the best study in the nation just saying, look, we have a functioning economy and a functioning state, and we've got a very low rate of virus. But that's just me kind of thinking outside the box there. I mean, I know there are critics of it. I, I understand, you know, some of their arguments, knowing some of the, the physiological mechanisms of how it works. Gosh, I wish we could. You know, in, it's not a Schedule One drug. It's not cocaine or pot or anything else that, you know, we could lose our licenses for prescribing. It's it's simply a drug that's not even a scheduled drug, you know, for the DEA. It's a, it's a simple, safe medication. Hmm. And, you know, one out of five every prescription the doctor writes, they write for an off-label use for something else. And so this fact that, oh, gosh, you know, it's not proven for this, I'm like... You go to your doctor, they write your prescription for something that was proven for something else, but they're using it for this, an FDA-approved drug. Yeah. And that's the prerogative of very smart doctors that know you, know your body, know your history, know your health condition. So if I'm talking to the governor, I mean, that's a wild hair idea. Otherwise, I would say, let's test the heck out of everybody. You know, let's not wait on a vaccine, because the vaccine, I'm very dubious of how quickly we'll get one and how safe it may or may not be until the hard, hard science is in, and the, the science will be the facts there. And I would say, you know, let's, let's do what we can to get, you know, crush the curve here. Let's get everybody tested. Let's see who's clear. Let's get them back to work. If you are out and about, be smart, be safe, physical distance, wash your hands, wear a mask, you know, do those simple things, and, and you know, be respectful of who you, uh, who you value as a friend, a brother, a sister in society, and try to do no harm. I take an oath in medicine to first do no harm, and as we go out and about trying to do what we want to do societally and functionally again, we also want to make sure we're not harming each other as well. So I think there's a, there's a, a prudence, a balance to be found in all of this. Um, and the fact of the matter is half of us are going to get it and not know we had it. The other half who get it, 80% are going to do just fine with mild symptoms. About 14% are going to be you know, moderate to severe. And about 6% are going to be critical and need hospitalization. So, you know, trying not to overwhelm our hospitals by all getting sick at once with a chickenpox party, you know, that could really end up killing more people because then we won't have the medical capacity to treat treat that number of people all at once. Mm. And so if the governor pushed back and said, OK, I'm, I'm going to follow with you, I'm going to go with what you're saying. How long is it going to take you to get us back to work to test and everything? Well, I think we could have a really good snapshot in the next uh, two months. Um, and, it, and that's just the practicality of the volume and number of people we would have to test. Um, but, you know, you can test pockets. I mean, I know there are pockets in Idaho, small towns and cities that have big clusters right now. 
And then there's others that really don't have any at all. So it's really a matter of, of again, mapping, mapping the enemy. And then eventually, you know, if we get, we get it controlled in one area, great, that area is functional, and we do selective quarantines. Because we're going to be playing whack-a-mole with this. You know, you get a case, a case, a case, mm-hmm. a cluster, and boom, within a population, we're going to try to whack-a-mole that, whack-a-mole that, here right. and there and here and there. And so it's, it's really a matter of, you know, selective quarantining in a pandemic is hard to do but probably the most prudent thing to do, because otherwise, you know, you shut down an economy, and now you end up with potentially a, a great recession, maybe depression. And so I think there, there, there's a balance to be found, but you can't go willy-nilly about it either. Mm. Dr. Ryan Cole, coldiagnosis.com. Sir, are you blogging about this too? Or are you, where, is, can we go there to figure out all your latest updates and everything you're talking about? I've been working 20 hours a day, my friend. I wish I wish I were blogging. A lot of people that asked me to. I, I did put out a video the week this weekend that you know got oh tens of thousands of views from doctors across the country, and I've been asked to to help all sorts of regions. I wish I could test everyone, just get us going again. I'm just one simple guy trying to do one one simple thing and mm. serve my community. Well, we're so th- you know, I, sure I, thankful. Thank you for everything you're doing oh, for us. Appreciate that. And for taking the time out to have, be here on Cross Politic too, sir. Thank you. Yeah. It's an honor to be with you guys. Thank you. Well, if you're single, get married. If you're married, have kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them until tomorrow. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. And support Rowdy Christian Media. You can do that at fightlaughfeast.com. Get your vitamin D. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Get outside.